Football is around the corner, and we are ramping it up over here on the Ringer NFL feed in the month of August. Every week, Ben Solak and I will be bringing you not one, but two extra point takens. That's right. Double the trouble as we predict, debate, and analyze our way through camp and the preseason every Monday and Friday. But that is not all. Steven Ruiz and I will be coming to you every Wednesday. We'll talk about everything in the world of the NFL. And who knows? Maybe Steven will even have something nice to say about your favorite squad. Though, frankly, I wouldn't count on it. Subscribe to The Ringer NFL Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow The Ringer NFL on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Ringer NFL. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. David? Yes? We've had a lot of breaking ESPN studio show news lately. Today, it turns out they recast Monday Night Countdown, also known as the Monday Night Football Pregame. You remember that Susie Colbert and Steve Young left with the recent layoffs. Now on the show, Scott Van Pelt, Ryan Clark, Baylor's very own RG3, mm-hmm. Marcus Spears, and then Adam Schefter, Michelle Beisner, Buck, and some others will continue on. What do you make of the revamped Monday Night Countdown? Don't leave out uh, Alex Smith and Larry Fitzgerald, who apparently will be doing some stuff too. Um, uh, ESPN, well, obviously, is a news organization. They've done an incredible job at owning the news cycle here. Just going to be a nonstop deluge. Every time, every episode of the press box from here on out is just a new <laughs> studio show gets recast, and we will discuss. I like all these people. Uh, listen, the countdown. <sighs> has always felt like, well, I'll just generously say old-fashioned. You know, I mean, it's it's a, it's a very sort of antiquated approach to the whole thing, and I think that's part of its charm, I'm sure. At least that's, uh, at least I'm sure there are people telling themselves that inside ESPN. Um, Monday Night Football is just a, a you know, the vestigal organ of a football institution. Um, but in some ways, Countdown's more important, right? I mean, in this sort of, well... More, more important, but still less important because there's a million different ways to to take in everything that happened on football weekend uh, before you even get to Monday night. Um, but so in some ways, I'm surprised that they just did a complete makeover. But I like all the people involved. Involved, love Scott Van Pelt, and I'm 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 interested to see where this goes. I had two inter- two little thoughts here for you. One is that ESPN's got a Super Bowl coming up which is the first in ESPN's history. This is going to be in 2027, so after the 2026 season. Mm -hmm. 
And it sure feels like all the moves you and I have talked about that have happened with ESPN's NFL stuff all are about assembling the Super Bowl team. So we got Joe and Troy calling the game. We now have Scott Van Pelt doing the pregame. And remember, this is going to be like an eight-hour pregame on Super Bowl Sunday 2027. Yeah. We got a new director on the show. We got a new producer on the show. This is the Super Bowl team. Provided, of course, there is such a thing as television and TV viewers in 2027, which just may be a little bit of a little bit of a reach. But they're putting together a group that is ready to go on that level. Yeah, I, uh, that's a really smart way of looking at it. I mean, they're they're definitely assembling their assembling the army here. I mean, we have no shortage of talent. I think finding the way the talent plays off each other, which is is important, and that's a, you know something they have the luxury of doing on multiple daily television broadcasts all the time. Um, right? Yeah, so this is. It's like, what if you had a television broadcast that had a hundred million viewers, mm-hmm. <laughs> like the Super Bowl? It's got to be the A team. Yeah. And it can't just be the A-team and the broadcasters actually calling the game. It's got to be the A-team all the way up and down the charts. Yeah. Second point sort of goes off that, which is that, remember when you looked at ESPN football coverage and the A-team was basically on the college side? Oh, for sure. The announcers, one-to-one, were better. The producing was better. I still think that Saturday night college football game is the best produced football game on ESPN, full stop. Mm-hmm. Maybe the new regime on Monday Night Football will get up to par or even pass that. The announcers were better. The pregame show was certainly better when it comes to college game day. Yeah. But it just felt like all the resources were on that side of ESPN. And only in the last year now and change, if we count the arrival of Joe and Troy, does it really feel like we're getting up to a point where it's equal or close to equal. Well, I mean, you you know better than me, but also I think probably the money was went further on the college football side up until fairly recently. And you could afford to have the best in the game, especially in the studio shows, right? I mean, there was a lot a lot less competition in terms of national, you know, broadcast with huge audiences. But uh now everything's expensive, and if you're going <laughs> to spend your money, if you're going to spend a lot of money, you, you should, you know, I guess you got to kind of pick and choose how you spend it. It does feel like there's some real choices being made here. But again, this is a lot of homegrown talent, too. It is. It is. Yeah, I guess there's more. There's always more inventory there for college football since they were only doing one game a week mm-hmm. for pros, unlike the networks. But it just felt like all the juice was over there. And again, it just felt like you looked at the quality of the broadcast. You're like, why are we doing this over here? But we're not doing it over there. Yeah. You know, I got a new NFL deal. You got Super Bowl coming in 2027. You got another Super Bowl coming to ESPN ABC after that. Mm-hmm. You got a better relationship with the NFL, which was one of Jimmy Patero's big accomplishments, what they call a reset, like with the U.S. and Putin. <laughs> We're going to do a reset with Roger Goodell. And now it feels like we finally have resources on that side of the ball, to borrow the old sports analogy, that are somewhat equal. Again, we'll mm-hmm. see how all this turns out. We'll see what a revamp countdown looks like. I think a studio show that you, you alluded to this earlier is really hard to do right now. But maybe you at least put different people there, give it a little more juice, and it feels like it's a more relevant live object in 2023. 
in some ways, Van Pelt, I mean, who knows if it's more relevant or live, but Van Pelt's a per perfect person for this job because his station for the past however long has been the sort of deep breath, slightly zoomed out recap of, of the, in, in his case, the day's events, but it's still with a little bit of distance, a little bit of air. It's a, with the, with the understanding that everybody has already absorbed all the information prior to tuning in. So, uh, this is, you know, in, when, when we're talking about recapping Sunday's games, there's 24 hours of distance here, but he's still got the cadence for it. You know what we used to call that sensibility a little bit zoomed out, take a breath. Why? We used to call it Sports Center. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have funny catchphrases and everything and just be able to see things with a little distance. But you're right. He's that guy and he's the figure out how to do that in 2023 guy. Yeah. Which might have which might be even harder than it was in 1993. Um, so there's gonna be some figuring out with this, but I'm eager to see what it is. Coming up on today's pod, the first big TV event of the 2024 election, the Republican debate. Is Wednesday night. We tell you what's going to happen and what Donald Trump will be doing, plus Michael Lewis and the blind side, box office numbers, and much more on the press box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis, David Shoemaker, and producer Erica Cervantes here. David, we, we made it. The first big event of 2024. Wednesday night, we got the first Republican debate. Yeah. It's not just about podcast segments anymore. There is going to be a real live political debate, or at least a television show. Yes. That has the contours of a political debate. We will leave the political heavy lifting to Tara Palmieri and others. But since the debate's a TV show, we've got a few things that are right in our wheelhouse that I'd love to talk to you about. Let's do it. First, the debates on Fox News. Mm -hmm. And the people who run Fox News have been waiting to see whether Donald Trump, the four-time NIT, four-time, four-time, <laughs> is going to show up. Well, Sunday, Donald Trump announced that he is not going to show up. Sure. And I know we're not really allowed to laugh at Donald Trump's social content. But I was looking at the truth social post oh, no. that he put up to announce his decision. He was going through the poll numbers of his opponents. He said, <laughs> quote, DeSanctimonious, who is crashing like an ailing bird. <laughs> ailing is kind of an only in journalism word, isn't it? Mm -hmm. He also called former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, A-I-D-A Hutchinson. Is that Aida like the opera? Um, Ada? I can't imagine that was on purpose. <laughs> if so, I got to do some reading. You don't think opera has been a frequent comic target for Donald Trump? <laughs> As a piece of TV content, mm -hmm. how will losing Trump change things on Wednesday night? Well, I mean, it changes it pretty dramatically, right? I mean, I, so the question is, is anybody going to watch at all? I'm sure some people will watch, but what is the... What just what is the audience for the Republican B team? I mean, what is the audience for a Republican debate? Even if even if Trump was there, minus Trump supporters, right? I mean, I, I don't. I mean, I guess a lot of people would watch. Uh, journalists would watch because they have to see what he's going to say, but they'll still be watching. I don't know, man. I don't know. Doesn't it um, feel like that old Bill gag he used to do in his column, where it's like Vivek Ramaswamy 
Mike yeah. Pence. It's a Republican debate on Fox News. Yep. Yeah, Trump? I mean, it's just like, I feel like all of the attention is, has been paid in the run-up. You know, will Willie or won't he? And all the candidates kind of trying to say, egg him on to showing up or say they don't care if he's going to be there or not. But I mean, there's just no precedent for something like this. Obviously, a major candidate not showing up, but just, I mean, someone that far in the lead saying none of the rest of this matters. Well, <laughs> and for once, Trump's telling the truth. You know, I mean, I, I, what would be the scenario in which somebody got a big boost from this? Well, let me take that back. Chris Christie is going to win the debate and get a big and get a nominal boost from this, but he's not going to win the nomination. He's not. He's not, probably never going to get to twenty percent. So, I mean, uh, uh, but, I mean, what is the, what is the case for anything significant happening? Yeah, and what is the Chris Christie boost? Is it actually in the polls, or he just gets on Meet the Press again? Yeah, I mean that's what I think is going to happen. I think he'll he'll be, he'll be touted as the winner, and like I said, he probably will win because he's the only one that's going to say anything interesting, uh, and or say anything anti-Trump, and he's you know good in these he, in these situations. Yeah, he's a, he's a capable debater, um, but it's you know unless something wild happens, it all seems sort of like a fool's errand. I mean, I guess he can hold down the fort for. For level, quote unquote, level headed conservatism and and but that's but that gambit is basically just hope I mean, is working under the under the pretense that something will derail the Trump campaign. We're talking about right? Chris Christie holding down the fort. Yeah. But I mean, this is we're putting a lot on Chris Christie's shoulders here, right? I mean, Chris Christie could be booed by the audience on Wednesday. No, I, that's what, I don't them. think I don't like I don't think there's any I don't think he'll ever I think I don't think he'll ever crack 20 percent. I mean, he might never crack 15 percent unless I mean, unless so, Trump somehow disappears and and he is, you know, the choice of the establishment. So what if I told you there was actually two programming nightmares here for Fox? No, oh, no. One is the big star is not going to be on the debate. And the second, as reported by Maggie Haberman and Jonathan Swan, is that Donald Trump's going to be doing former Fox employee Tucker Carlson's show instead. Airing simultaneously? I think it's unclear, but I would assume that's the plan. It'll and be this is his Twitter-only show? Yes. I think that's where that show exists at this point in history. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be like the Manning cast where Trump and Carlson are going to be watching the Republican debate. Oh, there's no chance. That might be the, that might be the setup, but there's no way that, that, that that's, <laughs> that they stay on topic. I mean, they, you know, just, it's, this is, as much as I would love to see Trump and Tucker try to do like mystery science theater with the Republican debate, I don't <laughs> think they'll be able to keep up or Trump will certainly not be able to keep on subject. I don't think Donald Trump would be quiet long enough to listen to the other exactly yeah. competitors. By the way, I know, again, what I said earlier, we're not supposed to like cackle or laugh or like Trump content, but you would watch the hell out of the Trump Carlson broadcast if they were actually watching the debate and commenting on it. Oh, yeah. I mean, we don't even need Dude Perfect there like Thursday Night Football on Amazon. Just the two of them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, if they if they were really going to do it, then that would change the whole tenor of the debate because the debaters would then shift their talking points to, you know, trying to say things that Trump would stumble over. 
or, you know, or not be able to take on. But everyone knows that wouldn't happen. And that doesn't actually matter if it did. Remember when uh, Tucker Carlson was going to leave Fox News and the ratings were plummeting? Yeah. People were posting that like one day and two day snapshot like, oh, my gosh, it's just not the same with Jesse Waters. The piece in the Washington Post, they, by the way, they've reclaimed a lot of that ratings territory back. So thanks to and, everyone. Who and remembered. Tucker, and remember when Tucker's first Twitter video got like eight million views or whatever, and people <laughs> were just like, "Bye bye, Legacy Media." But now I don't, I don't know how many he's getting now, but it's not. I love snapshot reporting on mm-hmm. ratings and Twitter views. Always great stuff. So we have some fresh polls out of the GOP race over the last twenty four hours. The national Amazing. national polls are still not close. CBS survey Sunday: Trump sixty two, Ron DeSantis. 16. Ronda Sanctimonious, you mean? Yeah, some real ailing bird numbers there. But the GOP nomination is not a national political race. It's a series of state races. And the new Seltzer poll from Iowa, that's from Ann Seltzer, long considered the gold standard, I believe that's the uh, trademark phrase there of Iowa pollsters, has Trump up only 42-19 over DeSantis. So it's at least a little bit closer. in Iowa, or is that national? In Iowa, all right. This is still the chain reaction theory of the GOP domination that you beat the favorite in Iowa, mm-hmm. and then everybody starts voting for you in all the rest of the states. Yeah. Again, this does not happen all that often in American politics, <laughs> especially if you're running against a former president who seems only more popular after every indictment. But well, and it's a theory. momentum game, right? I mean, that, I mean, it's oh, sorry, not a game. It's a momentum argument. Yes. And there's never been, you know, say what you will about the guy. <laughs> we should have a sound drop for say what you will about the guy. <laughs> say what you will about former President Trump. But he's about as well equipped to diffuse any momentum argument or to combat momentum argument as any as any candidate in history, right? All I, I mean, every time we see Trump, he's going to be like, that doesn't matter. I'm winning. And then that will be the news cycle. Trump says he's winning. Well, guess what everyone's hearing? He's winning. <laughs> I want to talk to you about the hilariously low entry requirements for the GOP debate. Oh, my God. Because they had to cut it off somewhere and they couldn't figure out where to go on. Yeah. You don't want just any old Larry Elder walking onto the stage. <laughs> you got to set a certain viability threshold. So mm-hmm. the RNC said you got to have 40,000 individual donors, which sounds like a lot, but I think you can... Facebook ad your way to 40,000 pretty quickly, especially mm-hmm. since they can just give any amount of money. And then there have to be... And they don't have to be unique donors. I mean, that's uh, that's probably not shocking to hear, but, you know, when you're talking about Facebook ads, it's like every old lady donating a dollar could be donating it to every candidate. Yes, unique to you. That's exactly right. Uh, then there have to be three semi-reputable polls that have you at 1% or higher. <laughs> so basically, people have to be aware that you're running for president. Yeah. And 1% have to be like, all right, David Shoemaker, that's who I choose at this point. And that has to happen three times. It can be a combination of national and state polls. And then most interestingly, you have to sign the Republican loyalty pledge. This is the RNC's other requirement. Because you remember Donald Trump famously did. So mm-hmm. these are the people who met those fairly low requirements. Ron DeSantis. Yep. Mike Pence, Tim uh-huh. Scott, and Nikki Haley, the aforementioned Chris Christie, Vivek Ramaswamy, last Oof. seen performing Lose Yourself at the Iowa State Fair, Doug Burgum, the governor of North Dakota, 
And if you think this is going to be the first time I've ever heard Doug Burgum talk on Wednesday night, let me tell you, that is correct. <laughs> I, I, would, I would not recognize Doug Burgum if he knocked on the door of my hotel room right now. Asa Hutchinson, <laughs> a.k.a. Aida, claims that he's in, but I don't believe the RNC had confirmed that at press time again. It's a matter of, did you get enough polls? Did you hit 1% enough times? And then there have been some disputed <laughs> I'm in claims from Mayor Francis Suarez of Miami and businessman Perry Johnson, who we should do a segment about at some point. So to come back to your earlier point, is the calculation here for the people who are actually appearing on the debate, I want to be better than all the other people on stage, or I actually want to be better than Trump? Well, there's... Um, those feel like slightly different approaches, right? Well, there's different camps, right? I mean, there's obviously a set of these people who are running for vice president, uh, whether or not they know it. I think most of them know it, right? This is Nikki Haley, Tim Scott. There's you could you could put a couple more in that category. There are people who are running for, uh, for you know their own self gratification, or you know just to raise their own public profile. Um, those are the real wild cards, right? Ramaswamy is a good example of that, but I'm not sure that that would mean he would say anything that would anger any Trump voters. Cause that might, that would probably, um, defeat the purpose of, you know, raising your Q rating amongst a certain set of people. Uh, and then there are people who are actually running for, you know, think they're running for president and, and, um, you know, say, uh, <laughs> Sanctimonious. Why am I only, why, now, now Trump's finally got me <laughs> after six Trump months. Pilled. Oh my God. Um, and Chris Christie and, you know, the, the, they're, they're, uh, the objective there is going to be to get, is, I mean, theoretically to be louder than Trump. Now we know Chris Christie can do that uh, to what end, who knows. Um, but uh, you know, will that really matter? No. I mean, I think Nikki Haley is an interesting one because she, her campaign has been just so incredibly ineffectual and laughable. She might have to make a whole lot of noise just to insinuate herself legitimately into a vice presidential conversation. Um, but to your question, I think that the majority of these people are going to try to win the night. Which which means that none of them will make any strides towards winning the nomination. I want to be the winner of this debate, the Trump alternative, without actually being the anti-Trump. That's the needle they're trying to thread. You think? I don't think anybody. I, I think that the number of people whose interest is, is being the the Trump alternative is actually relatively low. Is the point that I'm making? How many of these people? I mean, no one's going to say no to being president, but to be running a campaign to defeat Trump. Yeah, it's going to it's a it's an incredibly small it's an incredibly small number. So they're going to say, I want to win Wednesday night on points and then worry about whatever that means later. Yeah. I mean, maybe Hutchinson, maybe, <laughs> but I hope But how much. But if he makes it onto the stage, how much screen time is he really going to receive? Yeah, there's a, there's another person that I'm going to be like, what does Asa Hutchinson sound like again? Yeah. Name's a little more familiar than Doug Bergen, but I cannot say that I've... Well, we all know what Mike Pence sounds like. We do It'll know be, that. I mean, I think... And he's not it, running for vice president. I want to put no, that out there. No, he's certainly not. Um, we tried that. I, I almost said the word... It's, I almost said it's going to be interesting. It's not going to be interesting. It will be informative, I guess, to see what he sounds like. Um, but I think we. I think it's going to be some variation on a... 
you know, whoopee cushion <laughs> being sat on. <laughs> what if I told you that Team DeSantis posted their debate game plan online? Uh, yeah, I saw this. I This is kind of bonkers. Amazing story from the aforementioned Jonathan Swan, Maggie Haberman, and also Shane Goldmacher in the New York Times. So it was actually posted by, as they put it, a firm associated with the super PAC that has effectively taken over Mr. DeSantis's presidential campaign. We can explain that distinction in a second if it's interesting. But in this how to win the debate game plan, they posted four basic must-dos mm-hmm. for Ron DeSantis. Number one, attack Joe Biden in the media three to five times. <laughs> There's both an enormous amount of specificity and unspecificity in that. Yeah. Number two, state Governor Ron DeSantis's positive vision two to three times. So fewer, perhaps. With, they 100, 100, with 100% certainty, I tell you, they put out this list was originally drafted without the number of times and was sent back. <laughs> give, me, give me numbers. A numbered list always works better if we, have just a, if we can hit the target, right? Yeah. Ron DeSantis needs a number to hit. We're not, he's not going to pay us hundreds of thousands of dollars just to say things that everybody knows. Let's give him numbers. Oh, my God. Uh, number three, hammer Vivek Ramaswamy in a response. Which kind of tells you who they're worried about in Iowa. And number four, defend Donald Trump in absentia in response to a Chris Christie attack. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> And there's so even bad. there's even like suggested language for that. Trump isn't here, so let's just leave him alone, et cetera, et cetera. Oh my gosh. Unbelievable. And this is the reason this was posted online, apparently, is that Ron DeSantis's actual campaign account. That's the account where people are limited in the amount of money they can directly contribute, is running low on funds. That's a measure of actual popularity. Uh-huh. Which Ron DeSantis is suffering in that measurement right now. Yeah. But there's also super PACs where you have unlimited contributions that can be propped up by, let us say, a handful of people that really want you to be president uh-huh. and who are really rich. So that's what's still flowing for Ron DeSantis right now. That can spend money on him. But the super PAC can't coordinate with the campaign. They cannot talk to each other, but they can mm-hmm. post very specific instructions in an obscure corner of their website. <laughs> only to have New York Times reporters who say they were tipped off by someone outside of the campaign about where to find. <laughs> Wait, so they were posting these as yeah. like a secret message? Well, hey, how is that not communication? So again, you can run you can write here's a way for Ron DeSantis to win the debate. You just cannot call Ron DeSantis up and coach him in this. But how it's ridiculous. But if the intention was that no one would see it except for the intended receiver, that's a message. That's that we define message, right? Yes. And this was hundreds of pages long, by the way. This is a very like data filled memo thing. This is. I don't know. I, I, I did not. I'm sorry. That's that's just incredible. There could also be. A I can't believe they ripped you, off our they ripped off our technique. There was years where we only communicated via BuzzFeed listicle. You know, we would just <laughs> post things anonymously, and that's how we would know that the person was up to. Yeah. Well, the DeSantis campaign has not gone super well at this point, right? So there's probably a theory. What if we just post it where people could find it? Yeah. We're essentially like writing the instructions on a sign and posting it on a telephone pole, and hopefully that will get through to Ron DeSantis. I guess that's a theory too. Yeah. But they posted everything online. Public and debate, 9 p.m. 
Eastern time on Wednesday, Fox News's serious news people, Brett Baer and Martha McCallum, will be asking the questions, and Donald Trump will apparently be fielding questions from Tucker Carlson. All right, David, coming up, the case of Michael Lewis, Michael Orr, and the blind side. But first, let's do the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always, always gratefully received. This week's runner up is Elon Musk's latest gonzo proclamation. <laughs> he tweets or posts on X block is going to be deleted as a feature. No more blocking on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Some good responses to that, uh, including this is going to be like when the containment unit was shut off in Ghostbusters. <laughs> And also Aaron Rodgers playing behind a Jets offensive line. <laughs> well, that was good. But we're sure in the middle of Jets hype, aren't we? But this week's winner comes to us from listeners MBFan204 and Gruns. It's from a story that Michael Jordan's son, Marcus, oh, God. announced he is planning to marry Scottie Pippen's ex-wife, Larsa. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, Jordans can't get a ring without Pippen. <laughs> Oh, that's great. If you're ready to see the last dance turn into the first dance, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. All right, The Notebook Dump. Did you see the big blindside story? Yes. On ESPN.com. This is fascinating. Michael A. Fletcher has the byline here, and I'll just read a couple of paragraphs here to get us started. Retired NFL star Michael Orr, whose supposed adoption out of grinding poverty by a wealthy white family was immortalized in the 2009 movie The Blind Side, petitioned a Tennessee court Monday with allegations that a central element of the story was a lie concocted by the family to enrich itself at his expense. 
The petition dot 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 alleges that Sean and Leanne Tui, who took Orr into their home as a high school student, never adopted him. Instead, three months after Orr turned 18 in 2004, the petition says the couple tricked him into signing a document making them his conservators. It goes on to say that Orr feels like he was cheated out of some of the profits from the blind side, the movie, which made $300 million. Wow. An absolutely wild story. I have to say, I feel like when I think about Michael Lewis books, of course, Michael mm-hmm. Lewis wrote the book, The Blind Side. That book is the one I always actually, maybe this is his best book. That's where I go. Oh, you do think it's his best book? Well, at least I did. Yeah. Counterintuitively. Yeah. People would mention something else. Yeah. Because it's a really gripping story. I felt, and again, I haven't reread it in a long time, so, and which we'll get to that point in just a moment, that there was a lot of complication in there. And if you remember that book, Michael Orr, for a lot of the book, didn't want to talk to Lewis about what his life was like mm-hmm. before his adoption by the Tuies. And then, again, going off memory here, about like seven-eighths of the way through the book, he sits down and he does. Yeah. And just, Lewis has this chapter in there that's just like, here is what my life was like here is what my childhood was like Mm -hmm. up to this moment and it's gutting and amazing and i remember reading that when it came out and just being like oh my god uh and i thought it was a great book i was a little interested about some of the criticism that i saw michael lewis getting on twitter yeah and later in print because if my memory of the book sounds a little fuzzy I have not seen many people who seem to have reread the book either. Yeah. I saw Michael Fletcher, the author of the ESPN piece, talking specifically about how he went back and read the book as he was preparing this piece and saw the word adoption in there a lot. And you remember, Sean Tui was a friend of Michael Lewis. That's how he got onto this story in the first place. Mm-hmm. And whether you know there was enough due diligence there from Lewis about whether the Tuies really planned to adopt Michael Orr. Or do this conservatorship. But I've also found a lot of people writing about this and they don't actually seem to have gone back and quoted chapter and verse from the book. There was a whole San Francisco Chronicle column the other day that was like, yeah, Michael Lewis, remember he, he, he you know, ignored the A's pitching staff in Moneyball. Now this. <laughs> I'm like, well, that seems different <laughs> than what we're talking about here. <laughs> that just I don't know and I don't know it's like one of those things where it's like I'm all for going after another writer I'm all for going after Michael Lewis I'm not the keeper of the Michael Lewis flame at all but it just seems like if you're going to go after a writer either on Twitter or in a longer piece you kind of should have chapter and verse to tell us yeah. what we're talking about here yeah and I've seen yeah. some people go back and revisit aspects of the movie which was that, that okay? I saw a lot more of that. Obviously, the movie's a lot more attainable. We talk about this all the time on huh? different media, is just easier to, ref- to, to, to disseminate on social media for whatever reason. Um, if the blind side had only been an audiobook, nobody there would still be nobody reacting to the book itself. <laughs> um, now, at least you can post, put, post screenshots of paragraphs in the book. I've seen a little of that. Um, I think even for people who are fans of the book, the movie is what sticks with you, right? And which is to say the piece of the book that is about this, the relationship between Michael Orr and the Tuies, 
uh, is what sticks with you. And then it's also to say it's the Hollywood, you know, it's the, 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 the movie version of that, which is not, not necessarily reflective of what's in the book. Which um, flattens out the, a lot of the elements of the book, which is a different story. And of course goes to what Michael Orr's talking about here, right? This movie made, this movie about his life, he says made $300 million. And he did not say, his, his allegation is that he didn't see enough of the proceeds of that. Mm-hmm. The Tui family was paid, but he didn't. Michael Lewis did talk to the Washington Post, to Ben Strauss and Molly Hensley Clancy about this, and claimed that the money was not that big. Mm-hmm. That the movie may have made $300 million, but says he only got 250000 for the option to make the movie, half of which he gave to the Tui family. And then there was an extra amount. The family says he, he says he and Tui, the family received about 350000 each from the profits of the movie. So his claim essentially is there's not millions of dollars sloshing around here. Yeah. But this is the amount of money. But I don't know. I mean, again, I've been away, so I would, I would happily reach up and grab that book myself out of my bookshelf, but I don't know. It's just to me, I have not read if that if that piece is out in the universe, I have not read the satisfying piece about the book, The Blind Side. <sighs> maybe, maybe, maybe it will. Maybe it'll come. Maybe it's out there. I haven't seen it either. And if it's not, well, maybe we come back to this because it's worth discussing. Let's talk about NFL aggregators in the meantime. All right. A lot of attention paid to NBA aggregators on this website. Don't aggregate this. Well. In the last week, we had some news about NFL aggregators. Greg Rosenthal of NFL Media made a list of the top 50 NFL free agents for next year. Okay, top 50 people who will be free agents next year in the NFL. And follow me here, David. Aggregator number one, aggregator account number one, tweeted out Rosenthal's list. So not the little write-ups, but just like, here's, here's a list compiled by Greg Rosenthal. Number one, number two, like just the, the list. Mm-hmm. Then aggregator number one accused aggregator account number two of swiping his aggregation. Right. Because in this list, he had misspelled a name. And account number two, in reproducing a list created by someone else, had reproduced the misspelling. To which Mina Kimes responded, this is like a thief complaining about another robber stealing his loot. Yeah. Or stealing his technique. Do we, do you get served up these weird aggregator accounts like I do? Even though I do not follow many? Sure. Do you find this moment in sports journalism, if we're still allowed to call it sports journalism, so weird to just see the constant rat-a-tat-tat of aggregation like that. So there's like the Adam Schefter scoop and then an account quickly says so-and-so blew out his ACL, he's out for the season per Adam Schefter. Yeah. But in between time, there's also like, hey, here's a list per Greg Rosenthal. Mm-hmm. And that is thrown up on Twitter sometimes with a link, sometimes not. I mean, that to me actually has more value. Things that aren't native to Twitter or social media. I mean, th- for things that aren't yeah, you know, I mean, like a, Adam Schefter scoop will be on Twitter, also be an ESPN, but ESPN will then disseminate it on Twitter. But, you know, the contents of a podcast or a newsletter, or, you know, a longer form article will maybe not make it onto Twitter in the same way. I'm, there's obviously a lot of moral complications there, but I understand the value of 
let me pull out these quotes from the interview that you did with it with whoever right and and certainly like you know morality aside let me here here is the top 10 the top 50 list that i'm just going to post this now you know with a without the paywall or without the need to go that you know take the extra click or whatever uh obviously the aggregators are there's a click involved to go to their sites for the most part but they, they come in multiple forms um but yeah uh, just duplicating news i'm sure just helps build the traffic stream and helps push the stories and everything else uh, but yeah it's it is a very hazy part of like you said if we can even call it journalism um there are some news stories that I get from aggregators that I don't even follow. The, you know, it's the first place I see them. And so, I mean, yep. part of me is inclined to say, well, you know, it can't be all bad. But I think if you cleared out a lot of the chaff, then maybe we would just hear, you know, maybe you would just see the Adam Schefter tweet sooner or, you know, whatever. And, and, and there would be no need for, there would be no even perceived benefit of some of the aggregators. Although, you know, it's a, it's a, listen, there, for a lot of those things, there is a hole in the market that they're filling. You know, and and um, yeah, I understand. I mean, I can understand why they have value. Uh, yeah, I don't follow it really any. When we say when we say value, value to the Twitter surfer, value to the reader, because I often wonder, like, where is this going? Like, what's what are you doing? If you're doing this, like, what's what's your goal here? To be, I know it's some of those like link to sites that just sort of aggregate tons of material. Yeah, but like the Twitter aggregator person. Mm-hmm. What what's the what's the ultimate move here? Well, you can make money on Twitter now. Apparently, there's that. Um, I mean, the angst reminds me a little bit of the Huffington Post stuff from 20 years ago. Do you remember that? Yeah, when they came on the scene and were like really, you know, every magazine article back when we had magazines. Uh huh. There was that certain like, ah, oh, we did it, and journalists were like, "Wait, you can't do that." Yeah. You know, I worked so hard on that article, and you spent ten minutes doing a write through, pulling out the good nuggets, linking to me, but nah. Yeah. And you got a click, and I got a click. Now, of course, with Twitter, that's just much faster. And I'm sort of it a, is. I think like I totally understand people who feel robbed. <laughs> And be like something has been taken away. I'm not sure like the one line Adam Schefter tweet is, you know, information that is anything but like a little news blip. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what that that should be, you know, a sacred object that we should, you know, honor by only retweeting it or something like that. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I don't know what to do about these people. Like, what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, that's part of the problem. It, it would be one thing if this was a law, if, if you if the Twitter campaign was like a loss leader philosophically right that you're just like i'm going to tweet all this stuff out get a lot of people to come to my blog and then at some point i'm going to you know they're going to love all the freak all, all the all the actual content there and and i won't have to do this anymore but if whatever you're doing for free whenever you decide to level up your game someone else is going to be willing to do it for free just to take over what you were doing right to steal all that traffic just by tweeting other people's proprietary stuff for free yeah so I think there's a little bit of, I mean, obviously there's a, there's a sort of nihilism that underlies the whole, the whole practice. And I got, have to admit, I'm a little bit nihilistic about it too. Like, I don't think, I don't really know what you do about it. It is, it is incredibly dumb to argue about it. And I see this happening all over the internet when you, you know, I mean, listen, we get stuff, I get stuff from my like wrestling podcast that gets, that gets aggregated. And I look at it and I say, well, you know what? We, we did not, we, we determined that 
you know, it, there wasn't sufficient value in just making a blog post, re putting all the quotes from the interview in there. So that's, I guess that's fair game. But then all the people that do aggregate it will say, please credit, you know, wrestling blog 2000 with this transcription. And it's just like, really? Like, what, what do you please link here? You know, it's like, okay. Or you could just have them just say link to me, you know, like <laughs> link to the ringer. But like, you know, there, people are, you know, the closer you are to the crime, probably the more petty you are about it. Yeah, so. and it's and it looks like we're gonna. You could shun those accounts, right? Like if you're if you're in the original content game, maybe you don't retweet those accounts. Maybe you make sure that when you do it, you're going and finding the person who wrote the article and retweeting them. Making sure there's a link handy in all your retweets and stuff like that. We can all be better citizens of Twitter. Uh huh. We probably. Yeah, I remember when like the New York Times hyperlinks were the big oh my God. point of contention. I mean, and we probably and so, all aggregate things more than we think we do. Yep. I remember the other day there was a an article about baseball in Bhutan. This is a wild one, and there was like this amazing picture associated with it. And of course, I found it via an aggregator Twitter handle. Because they had just taken the picture and then, you know, done a little, I think maybe there's a link to the article either in the tweet. But the picture, of course, was in their tweet. Then I mm -hmm. saw like 500 other people just tweet it, non-aggregator people, and be like, this is the awesomest picture I've ever seen. <laughs> Meanwhile, the person who took the picture's name was nowhere close to the actual object. Yeah. Because it was a cool picture. But it was like, oh, well, you know, whoever took that, this is an awesome picture of baseball. So I think we probably all do it more than we think we do. I mean, we're sitting here having conversations about articles other people have written without, you know, linking out to them. <laughs> you it's true. Do the work. I try to say and, the bylines. You notice. No, no, you do. You do a good job of it. But, but I mean, even, uh, you know, the efficacy of linking aside, at some point, we're all making a value judgment, right? I mean, you mentioned HuffPo, but it's also like, you know, no one complained about the well, a lot of people did complain, but no one for in our seats were complaining about the content of like old Gawker or something when they were just like doing very, very personality and writerly writer driven. <laughs> we wouldn't even say write throughs, but takes on articles of note or or stories that other people had written on. They weren't doing original reporting for the most part. Right. right? Because, so because guess what? Journalists like attention. Yeah. And this is the other part of it, right? Whether or not you get traffic, you do like attention. Mm -hmm. And when people are like, oh, look at this, at David Shoemaker with this interview, oh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, they aggregated me. There was this hilarious one the other day, and I saw this through, through one of the aggregator accounts. It was a story in Marca.com, and the headline was, Apple reportedly has plans to buy ESPN. And it continued on from there. Now, listen, that is a huge freaking story if Apple <laughs> reportedly has plans to buy ESPN. Wait, where did you see this? Because you know how I know about this story? Wow. My mom asked me about it. <laughs> okay. It has gotten amazing traction. Let me tell you, this this may be like the 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 biggest human centipede of aggregation in sports media history. I clicked through to this article, which was aggregated. The article itself had that as a headline, but had nothing in it suggesting that Apple is reportedly has plans to buy ESPN. And in <laughs> fact, was aggregation of another article, which also did not say that. <laughs> Though it had just passed through like three things that I'm like, sorry, did I miss a, did I miss a beat in the Apple buying ESPN story? Because wow. that seems important. 
Mm-hmm. And eventually, some of them were taken down, I noticed, because they, were not, they did not. Wait, who's I, posting this story and then showing regret? That's maybe the most well, incredible Well, I, I think people, it. but the thing is, people get mad. You're like, hey, okay, never mind. Delete, aggregate something else. Why not? You know, why cause a ruckus? Anyway, oh my the story gosh. actually. So Apple's not buying ESPN. Well, I gotta, not my today. Mom's at the maybe beach. they will. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll try to get through to her. <laughs> let's see. Let's make sure she's up on the latest media news. Hopefully she'll hear this podcast. Uh, last one for you, David. Can I complain about the box office again? Sure. Here's a story from Variety. Barbie has crossed $537.5 million at the domestic box office, overtaking Christopher Nolan's 2008 superhero epic, The Dark Knight, which made $536 million. So Barbie, $1.5 million at the printing of this article above The Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think the authors of this article in in put the Dark Knight's box office into the inflation calculator, which one can handily find from the Bureau of Labor Statistics or, in fact, numerous other outfits? I'm guessing by the tone of your voice, the answer is no. David, they didn't. If you do that simple calculation, turns out Dark Knight didn't make $536 million. It made $779 million when you do constant dollars and you correct for inflation. Folks, why did we stop doing this? I swear to God, 15 years ago, whenever there was a box office story, people were being like, and oh, it was, a, it was a, everyone's favorite thing to do to use the inflation calculator. It was a bit. It was a good bit. And now inflation is more, you know. Yes, you uh, might have seen inflation in the discussed, news. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's much, it's, it's much more common to just talk about inflation in general, this, you know, in this day and age than it was then. And I don't know if this just goes back to Twitter because you need the Twitter headline that Barbie is passing the Dark Knight. Yeah. But you know what? If you just correct it, you could find Barbie passing something else. Nobody's mm-hmm. sitting there on Twitter being like, get back to me when Barbie passes the Dark Knight. <laughs> you could tell them to pass some other movie. Nobody gives a shit. All you're doing is Barbie made a lot of money. I love yeah. this. Variety. It's it's box office. You should you you should be the honest broker of box office, right? Right? Because otherwise it just sounds like what the movie studio wants you to write. Highest yeah. grossing Warner Brothers movie of all time. First of all, not a terribly important distinction to most people anyway. But that's important to Variety. Sure. They talked about this on The Town the other day. And I'm going to butcher it if I try to recreate the conversation. Although the guest, who I forgot who the guest was, but he was saying they should actually just, we should just count tickets sold. Which is fine. Do some kind of calculation. But yes. But the, you know, I guess there are people, there are probably people in, the, in to Variety's, in Variety's defense, there are, you know, people in Hollywood that do talk about these things in non-inflation adjusted terms. And that's their appealing to but it's <laughs> really not helpful at people all people that want to keep their job <laughs> people that want to get a raise this is like, yeah. like i bought a house in 1955 and it was $30,000 there's been an effort to take down the dark knight for years finally finally yes. it's getting platform and i want i want you to note that i am not a i have no side in this if the dark knight loses to barbie i don't care i just want is it just because dealing. of the oppenheimer is it just the nolan I don't know. I don't know. I don't care at all. But just give me some real numbers, folks. Quickly, David, our Not About Media segment. Do you want a further adventure from Scandinavia? Please. So when I was in Scandinavia, Denmark here to be exact, I went into a wonderful old bookstore. Shocking, I know. And the woman who owned the store had a bunch of posters. And I found a beautiful poster of the Communist Party of Denmark that was several decades old. And I said, 
I love to collect political posters. And I was like, I want that. I'm going to buy that poster. Mm -hmm. Then I had a little problem, which is I did not have a mailing tube to put that poster or another poster I'd bought on the trip in. How are you already carrying the other poster? Oh, just sitting back in the hotel room? In the hotel room. I didn't want to get crushed in my luggage. So now I'm like, oh my God. So I am walking around Copenhagen with some wonderfully nice and helpful Danish people trying to say, I need a mailing tube, which is not the most obvious turn of phrase in the world or something that like Google Translate here, not helping you on that? No, and in, in like English is very, very widely spoken there, but it was like, I, I just don't know where to tell you to go. There wasn't like a FedEx office down the street. Yeah, no, there wasn't like a, what do they have? DHL? They have I UPS? didn't even find that. I, I don't know if I was just looking in the wrong place. So I'm looking around, post offices have been closed and moved into other buildings and I went to a stationary store, but it was closed, like permanently closed. This is great. This is where, yeah, I hope this story ends with you just waving the Communist Party <laughs> sign on the street and screaming, like, and everyone used to eventually to get thrown in jail. People, people are my... throwing tomatoes at you from a crowd. <laughs> Here's how it ends. When I went to that closed stationary store, I looked next door and there was a map store. Oh. Like new maps, not just antique maps. What are new maps? Well, like they can print <laughs> maps of Greenland, of Denmark. And I walk in and the guy has a giant, and I mean giant, stack of poster tubes. And I'm like, oh, yes, here we go. And I go up to him and say, hi, I bought a few posters. Is there any way I could just buy the tubes from you? And this very nice proprietor cuts the tubes so that they are the exact length of my posters. Oh, my gosh gives me packing material so they don't slide around in the tubes in case there's any extra space in there. And then takes me to the cash register and I say, how much do I owe you for all this? And the answer was $2. Wow. I love Denmark. So you gonna, are you going to promote the name of the map shop now? I, I, will, I will tweet out the name of the map shop. All right. I don't quite have it in my hands. I almost bought a giant poster Greenland for my son. Little, At that point, yeah, he was big. probably just like, "What?" Well, he probably thought he had a sale. Like, if I treat this guy well. <laughs> I will be ordering that mail order, and hopefully they will have a mailing tube to take to the DHL store to send it. It's time for David Shoemaker Guesses, a straight pun headline. Yeah. Last Monday's headline about a proposed Leonard Nimoy postage stamp was lick, long, and prosper. Today's headline <laughs> comes from listener Mike Shapiro. It's from the New York Post. Sports Center anchor Sage Steele, David, who had been oh. used, who'd been suing, I should say, ESPN since last year, made an announcement on Twitter. Having successfully settled my case with ESPN Disney, I have decided to leave so I can exercise my First Amendment rights more freely. <laughs> she did by appearing on the Megyn Kelly show. But put that aside, we've got Sage unloading on a big company. What was the New York Post strain pun headline? Sage Sage advice, sage wisdom, sage, uh, sage. She is facing off. She is going up uh, against this giant Borg of a company. Sage, save it in Goliath. I said, David, uh, sage. Think, think. Stage of play. Anti-corporatism here, David. Oh my. Oh. Sage against. Sage against, Sage against the machine. Sage right, against man. the machine. By the way, speaking of aggregation, how much did you enjoy the story about Barbara Walters elbowing her into a trash can? 
I missed that story. What? I haven't been, I've been watching my aggregators. What happened? Well, she was in The View. Apparently, Barbara Walters was upset by something she said, and so there was a physical backstage confrontation, according to Sage Deal. <laughs> Did she have to wait to exercise her First Amendment rights to tell that story? Is that, was that part of the <laughs> I don't know. It upshot of that? It might have been awkward to tell it when she was still at uh, Disney, I guess. Yeah. Uh, my, my favorite memory of the Sage Steel era, and this is a highly personal one, is I was interviewing her at ESPN headquarters. I remember, it was right next to the big sports center studio, sitting in the sun. We're sitting there at a table talking. Very, 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 very nice. And uh, she looked at me and she said, you know what? You look like Woj. Or said, <laughs> you have the same haircut as Woj. I can't remember. It was one of the two. Anyway, fact check, true. <laughs> in both cases. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production Magic by Erica Cervantes. Back later this week with more Press Box and more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side by side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.